right, time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, January 5th, 2009. It's back to work, back to school, back to the grind. And praise God for a vocation, right? Yeah. If you have a job, thank the Lord. (laughs) Oh, man. These are some tough days that we're living through right now. Know plenty of people who are financially on the ropes. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Roseboro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the show that uh, desires to take every thought and make it captive and obedient to Christ. So, uh, what do we do? We we date, basically take what's being said out there in the uh, in the world of Christianity by major Christian leaders, pastors authors, conference speakers, anybody who claims to be an authority on Christianity or general religion, and we compare what they say to the Word of God. Why? Because if they contradict the Word of God, they're liars. (laughs) And uh, Jesus said in the last days, be sure that no one deceives you. And it's been the last days since Jesus ascended. So we've got we've got to be diligent. We've got to be diligent in faithfully comparing what people are saying to the word of God. And if it doesn't pan out that what they're saying jives with the word of God, you reject what they say and you stick to the word of God. And folks, you do this with me too. If I say something that doesn't jive with scripture, you call me to account, send me an email, say, Roseboro, you said this and that, and the Bible says this. How do you reconcile it? And if I go, <laughs> my favorite one was unicorns. Unicorns. Yeah. Oh, man. I had no idea that the King James Bible defended, talks about unicorns of all things. That was my favorite. You're my favorite. Uh, oh, man. And I did get plenty of emails from people. I got, one person emailed me and basically said that I was trying to deny the authority of the word of God by denying that unicorns existed. <laughs> It was a good argument, but it was not based on the original languages. It was based upon the uh, King James Bible, which, by the way, it was a, it was a decent translation for its time, con- considering the manuscripts that they had available and their understanding of uh, Greek and Hebrew at the time. You know, it, it that's a mirac- miraculously well done uh, translation. How so, old is that translation? Six, I think. Okay, I'm doing this from memory. I think 1611. Uh, it's early 17th century is when the King James Bible comes out and uh, of course there's all kinds of you know speculation as to whether or not William Shakespeare had anything to do with it so i i know it's I, i've i've but see there's a there's a substrain of of uh, american evangelicals that i think predominantly populate some of the baptist churches in the south um although there's one in corona um that i'm aware of here in southern california um had an opportunity to speak with a couple of people who attended that church and they believe and they argue that the King James Bible is the only inspired uh, translation of the Bible. And so they actually are very vocal about the King James Bible and claim that all the other modern translations um, are satanic in origin and don't correctly uh, translate the Word of God. And so they defend this King James only concept. Now, you know, I, in talking with people who actually hold this view, I consider them to be kind of like the flat earth people, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you ever been to college? I don't know if any of you had this opportunity. I went to UC Irvine uh, my first year of college, 
And there, there was people who believed in the flat earth that had a table set out outside, you know, in the common area. And, uh, you know, you couldn't argue with these people because they'd pull out a ruler and they pulled it up to the ground. Sure enough, the world was flat right there. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with the uh, King James only crowd. You know, I, I think that they're well-meaning, but their zeal is really in the wrong place. You know, I, I appreciate their zeal for, the fa- for trying to be faithful to the word of God, but they're fighting on the wrong front. Is it all perspective? No, it really isn't perspective. It just really comes down to really what you, you know, what does scholarship have to do with it? And here's the deal. I translate, you know, Greek and Hebrew myself. And every time I translate from the original languages, it never comes out in King James English. It just, <laughs> it just doesn't. So, you know, am, am I being satanically influenced then? No, no. It's, again, it, they have a zeal for God's word, but it's, it's misguided and they're fighting the wrong, they're fighting the wrong battle is what it comes down to. Well, today we've got a good program lined up for you today. Was that redundant? Today we have a good program lined up for you today. Yeah, that's from the Department of Redundancy Department. It sounds like the late night talk show guys. They, really? o- they always say they have a great show tonight or a good show tonight. Well, it's not really a show program. It's a good program. Well, show kind of well, I know, but it's same kind of thing. Maybe I should do some stand-up. <laughs> uh, do you announce when you have a, a really bad one? Yeah, today we have a really bad show lined up for you. <laughs> Oh, tough day today, by the way. Uh, my uh, my oldest child, my 19-year-old son, uh, the Navy came and picked him up and, and uh, whisked him away. He's off to uh, basic training. And I get – he's going to be up in that uh, Great Lakes Naval, uh, you know, the, the where they do the basic training for the Navy. It's right on the Great Lakes. And I don't know if you all know this, but January is a pretty cold month. In, bad month to get your – your head shaved. Yeah, it's a bad <laughs> month to get your head shaved. And I told Josh, I said, look on the bright side, son. At least you don't have to worry of dying of heat stroke. <laughs> you know, because, you know, in, in the Chicago area, they have, you know, they have the four seasons. And uh, you know, and uh, one of the seasons is hot and muggy. Okay. <laughs> and so if he had if he had gotten in to uh, do his basic training during the hot and muggy season, you know, of course, you run the risk of, you know, heat stroke and really having a miserable hot, balmy time, but now he has to worry about his snot freezing in his nose. <laughs> and everyone's going, ew. <laughs> um, want to remind you all, um, Pirate Christian Radio, we um, we have made available in the month of January an online ebook that you can purchase, and it is absolutely uh, a must-read. If you have not read this book, considering the challenges that are facing Christianity today and the state of affairs in Christianity today with a growing resurgence in liberalism. Now, in the in the early 1920s, it was modern you know, liberalism. Now we've got postmodern liberalism, thanks to the likes of uh, Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, Doug Paget, Tony Jones, and the Emergent Church, and these POMO guys who are out there basically engaging in uh, philosophically, it's called deconstructionism, who who seem to think that uh, somehow you can uh, hold on to Christianity but completely deny the scriptures, and they're openly attacking sola scriptura now and other things, and the the gospel that they that they've come up with is anything but the the historic biblical gospel. Well, how do you fight this? Well. Um, one of the things that C.S. Lewis, he was very a strong advocate for people doing, and he had a great argument. If you've uh, ever, ever read the translation that came out in the 1940s uh, on Athanasius's book on the Incarnation, C.S. Lewis wrote the preface to that, uh, to that translation, and in there is a little article he wrote called On Reading Old Books. You can Google this online. Of course, if I was 
really nice. Yeah, if you send me an email, let me know how nice I am. Maybe I'll consider it. But um, I'll put a link up at fightingforthefaith.com because you know people have reproduced this online. And C.S. Lewis makes the argument that uh, you really, you know, we Christians need to spend time reading historic Christian books that are outside of the current century. Okay, and there's a reason for that. And the basic reason, you know, it has to do with the fact that fish have a hard time seeing the water that they're swimming in. And so do we. And if you think of uh, water as, you know, the cultural environment that we grew up in, the presuppositions that we all share in common at this time in history, what happens is if you read Christian authors outside of this uh, century, outside of the last hundred years, what happened is, is they come to they come to Christianity with a different set of assumptions, a different set of experiences, and uh, they see things differently than you do. And as a result of it, they're actually capable of helping you see your blind spots in Christianity. And so what uh, C.S. Lewis in this On Reading Old Books our essay that he wrote really makes the case that you, 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 know, you need to be reading a lot of old books. So what do I recommend? Augustine, uh, the, the Church Fathers, uh, Athanasius, read the Reformers. Um, get out of this century. And believe me, it'll do you well. It'll show you your blind spots, and it'll help you see some of the assumptions that you're working with. Well, this book, um, Christianity and Liberalism, by J. Gresham Masham, was written against uh, the growing uh, modernism and modernism and its liberal you know, form you know, that was taking over Princeton and the Ivy League uh, uh, seminaries at the time. And it's just well done. And the funny thing is, is that I've heard several people make the claim, Mike Horton being a, uh, among them, that this this postmodernism that's that's so popular nowadays that it's really not postmodernism. It's just it's it's just a resurgence of modernism. And that being the case, this book, Christianity and Liberalism, you need to read it. You need to read it because Machen does a fantastic job of tearing this apart biblically and giving you some sound answers and some sound rebuttals apologetically to defend your faith against what's going on in, it, it, with this postmodern attack on uh, on Christianity. So you can purchase the book online. Go to piratechristianradio.com and click on the cover right there. Uh, you know, And if you're listening to the show in February, because I know there's a lot of podcasters that, you know, that, that'll catch up on shows later, we'll, we'll keep it available in the store section of Pirate Christian Radio. It's an ebook. It'll uh, you can once you purchase it and your credit card is approved, we'll send you a link that where you can download it. It'll be good for a few days, and uh, in, it's in a PDF format that you can highlight, that you can mark, that you can comment. Worth the read. And uh, when you get it, die, you know, read it, mark it, inwardly digest it, get to know the arguments, and believe me, it'll help you in uh, helping you better understand Christianity and to come up with a lucid, well-thought-out, biblical counter-argument for the stuff that's going on that's attacking Christianity today. So piratechristianradio.com, click on the Christianity and liberalism icon there on the homepage. And if if it's past January, go to the store. It'll still be there. And it's... Very inexpensive. Very inexpensive. Don't let that fool you. Five ninety five. Yeah. You know, I could charge more, <laughs> but I won't. What, what we will probably do is uh, one of the things I'm going to be working on is we're going to make an audio book version of that available. Now that we can't do for inexpensive, but uh, it'll be a little bit more expensive than the the written version of it. But that probably won't be available until February March at this rate. So all right, moving along. Um, okay, we got a question for you. We're going to do some apologetics today. And why? Because we need to. Folks, it's one thing to curse the darkness, and boy, we spend some time doing that. Okay, and boy, there'll be some darkness that we'll be, 
somebody will be cursing somewhere after they hear this. Um, how do you know what you know? That's a great question. How do you know what you know? Okay. How do you know something is true or something is false? How do you make a, a determination about whether something is true or false? It's a great question. Yeah, well, see, a lot of people do this in different ways, right? Now, um, if I were to ask you, how do you know that Jesus um, is alive and that he lives? And immediately some of you might be saying, well, there's a song. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's merry way. He lives, he lives. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Okay. What kind of answer does that hymn or song affirm regarding knowledge of Jesus? None. None. Well, actually, it's a subjective way of approaching things, right? Okay. How do you determine something is true and how, and how do you determine something is false? Do you reach out with your feelings, Luke? No. Feel the force flowing. <laughs> if I had a lightsaber? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Okay. So, <laughs> but here's the funny thing is, is that there's a ton of people who make decisions about the truth based upon their feelings. Nothing more than feelings. But my question is, is that how the Bible encourages us to uh, discover whether something is true or not? Well, you you say that with such confidence, you know. Don't you understand? This is a postmodern society, and that kind of arrogance—I mean, that kind of certainty—really just comes off as, you know, doubt is the new faith. Didn't you know that? <laughs> okay, so how do you know something's true? Okay, well, I'm going to play to you some Mormon testimonies. Now, this isn't necessarily about Mormonism. This is about how you know something is true or false. Okay, and I want you to listen very carefully. Uh, we're going to be playing two testimonies. From people who are uh, who've converted to Mormonism, and I want you to listen to how they decide whether or not the Book of Mormon is true. Now, before we do that, I want you to keep something in mind. Okay, if you were to do archaeological research into the Book of Mormon, you would find that there is not one city mentioned in the Book of Mormon that has been archaeologically identified as actually having existed. There is no. Archaeological evidence for the Lehi, for the Lephites and the Nehites, or whatever the the Uptites and the, yeah, the 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 tribes that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Okay, archaeologically, the Book of Mormon claims that there was a huge battle. Okay, uh, you know, kind of a showdown, Armageddon type showdown that took place in New York uh, at the Hill Cumorah. Okay, and the archaeological uh, digging that has occurred there has not turned up a single artifact to confirm the claim that there was a big battle that was fought there. There is no map in the Book of Mormon. Okay, you can't you can't go and visit these cities. The Book of Mormon claims that there were elephants and that there was coinage and that there were bows and arrows and swords and, and all these things. And archaeologically, not one shred of these artifacts have ever surfaced. So much so that uh, the uh, Smithsonian Institute actually publishes a statement regarding the Book of Mormon and whether or not they consider it to be um, historically valuable. Um whether or not they consider it to be historically accurate, historically true. Um, and um, they don't speak favorably of the Book of Mormon. Okay, So you know, if you were to look at this just from the point of view from archaeological evidence, 
from the point of view of the veracity of history and the claims that are being made there, okay, um, then you would know that um, that there isn't any evidence historically, scientifically, archaeologically to support um, the claims of the Book of Mormon. In fact, let me see if I could find this um, Smithsonian statement. Oh, yeah. Okay, here we go. Listen to this. Okay, this is... I actually have a copy of this letter at home, by the way. I sent away for one of these. Information from the National Museum... Uh, from the National Museum of Natural Hist- History, the Smithsonian Institute, Washington, D.C., zip code 20560. Of course, the zip code makes it... A, you know, that, that makes it real. <laughs> okay. Concerning your recent inquiry regarding the uh, Smithsonian Institute's alleged use of the Book of Mormon as a scientific guide... Uh, has been received in the Smithsonian's Department of Anthropology. The Book of Mormon is a religious document. It is not a scientific guide. The Smithsonian Institution has never used it in archaeological research, research and, at any, and any information that you have received to the contrary is incorrect. Accurate information about the Smithsonian's position is contained in the enclosed statement regarding the Book of Mormon. This is their official statement, okay, which was prepared to respond to the numerous inquiries that the Smithsonian receives on this topic. Because the Smithsonian regards the unauthorized use of its name to to disseminate inaccurate information as unlawful, we would appreciate your assistance in providing us with the names of any individuals who are misusing the Smithsonian's names and please address any uh, correspondence to and they give the address. Okay, so they're, they're, pretty, uh, they're pretty strong about this. So, statement regarding the Book of Mormon from the Smithsonian Institution. One, the Smithsonian Institution has never used the Book of Mormon in any way as a scientific guide. Smithsonian archaeologists see no direct connection between the archaeology of the New World and the subject matter of the Book of Mormon. Okay. Two, the physical type of the American Indian is basically mongoloid, being most closely related to that of the peoples of Eastern Central and Northeastern Asia. Archaeological evidence indicates that the ancestors of the present Indians came into the New World probably over a land bridge known to have existed in the Bering Strait region during the last Ice Age. Okay, now why is that important? Well, the Book of Mormon claims that the people in the New World are actually Semites. Why? Because they claim that uh, Jews got in a boat and sailed here, okay, 600 years before Jesus walked the earth, okay? Three, present evidence indicates that the first people to reach this continent from the east were the Norsemen who briefly visited the northeastern part of North America around uh, A.D. 1000 and then settled in Greenland. By the way, Greenland is not very green. I don't know why they call it that. And there's nothing to show that they reached Mexico or Central America. One of the uh, number four, one of the main lines of evidence supporting the scientific finding that contacts with the old world civilizations, if indeed they occurred at all, were of very little significance for the development of American Indian civilization is the fact that none of the principal old world domesticated food, plants or animals, except for the dog, occurred in the new world in pre-Columbian times. See, by the way, when did horses first arrive in the new world? Columbus brought them. Okay, And the Book of Mormon actually claims that there's horses running around. Um, in the New World prior to Columbus, which is historically completely inaccurate. Okay, so um, hang on a second here. The name Greenland was a marketing thing. <laughs> Are you sure about this? I'm positive. John is making the claim that the name Greenland was a marketing ploy. Yeah. 
All right. People to go there. All right. So, hey, we're going to go to Greenland. They didn't want to call it White Land or, <laughs> I, or Iceland. <laughs> that was already taken, right? Yeah. Because, you know, anyway. So, all right. Let's see. Number five, iron, steel, glass, and silk were not used in the New World before 1492. Why is this important from the Smithsonian Institute? Because the Book of Mormon claims that they were. Okay. Before, I mean, long before Christ even walked the earth, supposedly there was iron, steel, glass, and silk that were being used in the New World. Um. Except for the occasional use of unsmelted meteoric iron, native copper was worked in various locations in pre-Columbian times, but true metallurgy was limited to southern Mexico and the Andean region, where its occurrence in late prehistoric times involved gold, silver, copper, and their allies, but not iron. All right, so, I mean, basically, over and over and over again, I'll put a link up to this at fightingforthefaith.com, by the way. Okay, so over and over and again, the Smithsonian Institute, they have a different scientific opinion. Um, they have an opinion about archaeology and the history of the New World that completely contradicts the Book of Mormon. So who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe that the Book of Mormon is really from God? Or are you going to say, no, wait a second, there's a problem here. If this was really from God, then wouldn't there be some of the evidence to support the claims in the Book of Mormon? Because, by the way, over and over and over and over and over and over again, when people have said something in the Bible... And the word of God isn't true. There's no, there was no city that was named this. There was no people's name that. There was no this name that. Or, you know, that's fictitious. Well, over and over and over again, the shovel has turned out to be the most amazing uh, tool in proving the Bible to be true. The shovel, on the other hand, seems to be the worst enemy of the Book of Mormon. Right? So how would you determine whether or not the Book of Mormon is true? Well, the Book of Mormon... And the Mormon missionaries, they ask you to determine the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon by turning off your brain. Forget the facts. Forget the facts. And instead, you're going to find out that the Book of Mormon is true using a subjective experience. And I want you to hear these. Here we go. If we, this is Mormon number one giving her subjective experience that proved to her that the Book of Mormon is true. Con converted yeah. Mormon. Yeah. It was not a decision I made with my head. It wasn't, that was what was so odd about it, was that I was raised in academia. Everything made sense. I studied. I was a math brain, a science brain. Everything had to make sense. And this was the first time in my life that I was making the biggest decision I had ever made based on something that I didn't feel that I could or had to prove on paper. I knew that God told me this was true. I knew that I had read the Book of Mormon and that I had prayed and that I had done everything the missionaries told me to do and that I, without any question, knew that this 14-year-old boy in New York, Joseph Smith, was actually a prophet of God and that the Book of Mormon was actually the Word of God and that the truth had been restored. And I couldn't prove it. I didn't, I didn't have any proof. And, and so it wasn't... It wasn't anything that was logical. To ask me what I was thinking, I wasn't thinking. I was feeling. And That's an important thing. I wasn't thinking. I was feeling. I hadn't ever really been in touch with my emotions before and didn't realize how much more powerful that would be. All right. That is Mormon testimony number one. Here's Mormon testimony number two. This one's from a guy. I'm Tim Gordon and I am a Mormon and this is an experience that I had not too long ago. I was talking to somebody about the Mormon church 
And we got into the conversation where he was saying that he knew the book, that the church, what this church wasn't true, and he knew it because he knew the Book of Mormon wasn't true. And I asked him if he had read it, and he said no, he didn't need to. He knew it was false. And I. By the way, I've read the Book of Mormon. Boring, poorly written. Oh man, was that that was like crawling on your belly over glass. It was so. Ugh. And it came to pass, and it came to pass, and it came to pass, and it came to pass. Just was telling him that you can't know something is false without experiencing it. He had. Okay, did you hear that? You, I'm going to back this up. I want you to hear what this guy says. Okay, he's right about the fact that you know you shouldn't just dismiss something without first checking into it. But I want you to listen to how he determines whether something is true. He was saying that he knew the book that the church what this church wasn't true, and he knew it because he knew the Book of Mormon wasn't true. And I asked him if he had read it, and he said no. He didn't need to. He knew it was false. And I just was telling him that you can't know something is false without experiencing it. He had Stop. You can't tell something is false without experiencing it? Okay, just a simple question. When was the last time uh, any of you saw a courtroom drama and somebody it admitted as evidence their feelings regarding the truthfulness of something? I don't, I don't have any evidence to prove to you today... Uh, your honor, that such and such a person actually committed the crime and murdered so-and-so, but I just know in my heart that that person is guilty. That's a case that Perry Mason would have lost. Yeah, I think so. Perry Mason, no, there isn't an attorney on the planet that would argue that case. They would get creamed. So basically what you're saying is, is that you have no evidence whatsoever to prove that so-and-so committed this crime, but you feel in your heart that he's guilty, therefore he's guilty. Right. And so what you want the jury to do is to pray about it, and then God will tell them that he's guilty too? <laughs> Hang on, let's continue. He had to read it for himself, and he had to pray and ask God, because that was something that I have done again and again. And that's how I know if things are true or not, is by asking God. So one time, so after I had that experience with him, when I was talking to him, and we just had this conversation about how... He, the only way that he could really know is by reading and asking God. When I went home that night, I opened up the Book of Mormon and I started reading it. And I just had this warm feeling come over me that I knew was from God, confirming that the Book of Mormon really is true. And that So he had a warm feeling come over him com that he claims is from God that confirmed the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Despite the fact there is not one shred of archaeological evidence to support any of the claims of the Book of Mormon. Not one. Do you know that actually there's a guy... In the Book of Mormon, who was killed, and it, it, it used, it's funny, it uses old English, it uses the word smote. The guy was smote. Somebody smote his head off. And apparently, according to the Book of Mormon, the guy whose head was smote off, he kept breathing through the stub in his neck for a little bit before he died. <sighs> so, but if you pray, God will tell you it's true, despite all the silliness about it, right? It's, it's a warm feeling? Yeah. The Book of Mormon sounds like a hot chocolate. It, you know, it could be like what is it that they put in the um, in the barrels on the uh, on the dogs that save you on the Swiss Alps? Is it brandy? Brandy, maybe rum. Yeah, see, it, it could it could be brandy or rum. That'll give you a warm feeling, wouldn't it? It surely does. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I'm glad it doesn't. Stop calling me Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we continue. It's really his work, and because of that, I know that. The LDS Church or the Mormon Church is the true Church of God. It's His work on this earth. I've had so many other experiences in my life that have really made me happy and really have brought me closer to God. And I'm so thankful that 
I have had those experiences in my life. And I know anyone who wants to find those up, things out for themselves, they can ask God. And God will confirm it to them as he has to me that these things are true. All right, so there you go. Two Mormons. And by the way, this is the way you know something, that, that you know the Book of Mormon is true in Mormonism, is that you pray about it, read the book, and then God's going to give you a burning in your bosom or a warm, fuzzy feeling telling you it's true. Any of you buying this? No. You're not buying this, are you? Well, it's it's true that that's what they believe, but that's a pretty miserable way of determining something's truthful or not. So despite all of the evidence to the contrary that says that the Book of Mormon is really best used as toilet paper, um, you instead decide that you're going to determine something is true by having a subjective feeling about it. Right? Now, I'm going to point this out. I... It, this is not limited to Mormonism, and there are plenty of people who call themselves Christians who engage in this type of epistemology. It's tomfoolery. It's a subjective way of knowing the truth. I just know because I know because I know in my heart, right? Reminds me of my evangelical days. Exactly. So when we get back from this first break, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, how you know what you know, and we're going to spend a little time with John Crowder, but then we'll also spend some time in the scriptures. So uh, if you'd like to email me regarding your burning in the bosom, um, I can send you some antacids, or uh, maybe a coupon. My wife gets coupons for these things, so we'll send you a Pepsi coupon. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We will be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Fighting for the Faith is underwritten in part by LifeLock. Did you know that identity theft is a $50 billion a year business? And the severe downturn in the economy is providing identity thieves with even more incentives to hijack your identity and destroy your good name. But LifeLock provides a proactive identity theft service specializing in the prevention of identity theft rather than the reporting of it. LifeLock was founded in 2005 and is already considered the industry leader in identity theft prevention. In fact... LifeLock CEO Todd Davis is so confident in LifeLock's ability to protect your good name and stop identity thieves dead in their tracks that he freely shares his social security number on television, radio, and the internet. Furthermore, LifeLock guarantees its services up to $1 million. For more information on LifeLock, visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on the LifeLock logo on our homepage. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You know, I got an email from somebody on Facebook, and they said, don't add any lyrics to this bumper music. <laughs> Apparently, they must know prophetically, within their hearts, that I am just not capable of writing any good lyrics. 
<laughs> All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I'm your servant in Christ, and we're in the middle of a just I'm asking some questions. How do you know what you know? Okay, when it comes to the scriptures, how do you know? How do you know what, that you know that you know that you know? And we're doing a little comparative work here, and uh, take a look at the Mormon epistemology. Mormon epistemology is all about uh, if you want to know the Book of Mormon is true, don't look at the evidence. Forget the fact that there's no map in there. Forget the fact that the best archaeologists in the world, including the Smithsonian Institute, think that the Book of Mormon is complete rubbish as far as its claims, and none of the claims in it can be substantiated historically, archaeologically, scientifically, none of the above. Okay? So what do you got to do? Turn your brain off. Ask God to show you, and he'll give you a warm feeling in your heart that'll tell you that it's true. Now, as sad as this sounds, as ridiculous as that sounds, that's exactly the same type of epistemology that a lot of people who are Christians today engage in. And I'm going to make the claim that you need to knock that off, because that's not what the Bible encourages us to do. Um, quite to the contrary, actually. Um, but before we get into that, uh, what's fun, did I, have I told the story about my encounter with the Mormon missionaries? I probably have, but I'll tell, this, tell it again. Um, when I, back when I was doing cult apologetics, it, we invited the Mormon missionaries over to our house. Uh, they asked if I would read the Book of Mormon. I said I'd be happy to. I read the Book of Mormon. They came back a couple weeks later, and the first question out of one of the Mormon missionaries' mouths was, so when you were reading it, how did it make you feel? And I said, you know, it's really funny. Um, as soon as I opened up the Book of Mormon, I felt the light get darker, and it got really cold, and I felt the presence of evil in the room, and, and I could actually kind of sort of see my breath. It was, it was so horrible of an experience. But every time I would shut the book, it would go away. The sun would get, you know, and, and, the, and the guy looked at me, I kid you not, he goes, you're not reading it right. <laughs> <laughs> and so what did I tell him? I said, you know, we've got two completely different subjective experiences. And they cancel each other out. So we're not going to be able to determine the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon from subjective experiences. I guess we'll have to look at the evidence. Right? That was fun. Until the bishop of the region yanked those kids out and sent them off to Siberia, I think. <laughs> you know, um, anyway. Do they skip your house now? You know, um, the Jehovah's Witnesses still come around from time to time. Although the last time um, we met with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they got really angry at uh, my wife of all people. You know, <laughs> that was quite an experience because my wife, the, the, the Jehovah's Witness lady who uh, who was talking to us in front of our house, she basically made the claim that she barely ever sins if ever. And my wife looked at her and says, "You are such a liar." <laughs> <laughs> so now they they kind of avoid our house. But uh, so there it is. Anyway, so, okay, so how do you know what you know what you know? All right. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time here um, in some bad stuff. Folks, this is really going to be frustrating to listen to. But the, the token the Holy Ghost guy, uh, one of them, John Crowder, um, just recently put a YouTube video up uh, from a recent sermon. I don't know if you can call it that, um, that he gave um, at a church. And so this, the video itself actually takes place in a church. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear what he says. And um, this is some really bad stuff. Uh, here we go. So John Crowder has been appreciate that. now approaching the oy, 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 oy. Uh, I think I'm going to wreck because... You know, they, they say when you, you put two... Two users together. 
And you see, when, when he gets up here, and then you expect me to get up and say coherent words later, afterwards. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, dear Jesus. Oh, Lord. He's apparently experiencing the Holy Spirit of, you know, he's having some kind of a, an ecstasis. He made the sign of a cross. Yeah, he did. He did cross himself. Um, I actually, unfortunately, listened to most of this. It's 10 segments long. So it's it's like, oh, man, it's long on YouTube um, with each segment running about r- roughly 8 to 10 minutes. And uh, this guy is quoting uh, mystics, uh, Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross. I mean, he's all over the place. But let's let's continue listening here. Yes, Lord. I've learned a, a quick prayer. I'll teach it to all you really quickly. Okie dokie, Lord. Okie dokie. Lord, I love your heavy, drunken glory. Now, you think you would think for a second this is a joke. He's this is not a joke. He's not doing stand-up comedy. Okay, he is actually claiming that he's one of the new mystics, and all this stuff that sounds like he's having a hard time even composing himself. He's supposedly drunk on the glory of God. Um, he actually may be drunk on a physical substance as well, but uh, he doesn't claim that for himself. But we continue. Uh, Lord, I love it. Lord, thank you, Father, for more heavy, weighty, drunken glory in this house today. That's my favorite little bit of you, Jesus. <laughs> oh, 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 is the bliss, is the joy. Oh, oh, oh. You know, Isaiah 35, it says, you will be overtaken by joy. That means taken over by joy. That means possessed by joy. Thank <laughs> you, Lord. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Lord. Uh, sometimes the Lord, the, I used to have a teaching gift. <laughs> yeah, apparently I used to have. Now I have a, a good gift of uh, getting struck mute in the middle of a service. One of those few guest speakers who you invite in, and then you may not be able to speak. <laughs> huh. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Lord. Well, today, um, just invite, we just thank you, Lord. That we have these little fat friar tuck bartender angels that travel around with us, and they wheel in the barrels from heaven. Some healing angels that come. But let me tell you, these little fat friar tucks, they start yanking on your legs, yanking on your arms. You better watch out. You know, we need a little help around here. I think it's okay to talk about the angels in the church. Amen? Yoing, yoing, yoing. Help. We need somebody. Help. I mean, if we think we can get along, oh, just, let's just focus on Jesus. Don't talk about the angels. Just focus on Jesus. Don't talk about human beings or animals or any other creature the Lord's created. <laughs> I think maybe we need to learn a little bit more about the spirit realm. What do you think? I think maybe. The more our eyes are opened up to that realm of his glory. Hoi, hoi, hoi. Now, just real quick. You know, now, for a second, imagine yourself in this church believing this guy. Okay? He's not giving you God's word, but he's telling you that you, this is true because you can experience these things. Right? How is this any different than the Mormon epistemology that you can know that the Book of Mormon is true by praying about and God will give you a burning in your bosom and you'll experience the truth, right? There's no, there's really no difference. Let's continue. Things are going to be a little more easier, a little more cream and butter on our feet. 
Oh, thank you, Lord. Whoa. Lord, I want to do it your way. I want to do it the highway. I want to do it the right way. I want to, I want it to get done. Oing, oing. <laughs> Lord, I, I just want to, you know, your efforts are not necessary. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Say, my efforts are not necessary. I think this morning a little bit about the ecstasies of God. There's a realm of God's glory uh, of signs and wonders that are being poured out. We're seeing just incredible stuff everywhere we go. I mean, I was just in uh, uh, South Carolina this week, and, uh, you know, me, the great healing revivalist, I catch the flu. And I'm up there, and I'm, I'm, I'm preaching, and I've got the flu, and I'm just thinking, Lord... Because people are, are like losing weight, weight loss miracles. People are like holding their pants out. Right. I need one of those. <laughs> um, metal pins and things melting people's legs. People getting healed. And I've got the flu. And I, Lord, I'm praying for all these people. And I'm seeing all these miracles. But Lord, why won't you touch Johnny? Why don't you put some in Johnny's plate? Lord, Johnny, Johnny's hungry for a meal. Lord, give Johnny his. Yoing, yoing, yoing. You see, you gotta understand. You already got yours. Say, you just gotta. Why work for what you've already got? You've already got it. <laughs> we just gotta get gotten, Lord. I just get, just get me. Just get me. Come, Lord, get me right now. We just want to be overwhelmed, over, absolutely whacked, slosh, slippity slap. Just fill us up, Lord God. We wanna, we wanna just ride, Lord, that glory train. I thank you, Father, that what's happening is not a work of man. It is not a traditional work. It is not going to be in the bounds of con- of tradition, conventionality, or religion. Not man-made formula. Not theological or doctrinal understanding, Lord God. But what you're releasing, the mysteries in that realm of heaven. It is a wildfire. It is a fire that. Under our control, it is going to spread where it wills. And Lord, we ask that you would come and fully possess us, fully use us. I thank you, Lord, that we are a wildfire generation that is going to be absolutely consumed by the bliss of heaven, the ecstasies of God, and the fullness of the truth of the living God. Okay, now stop. Okay. What did he just attack? Doctrine, theology, religious tradition, anything that would basically say, wait a second, that's not what God's word says. Okay. How is he determining truth then based on experience? So he's supposedly having an experience that he's saying that other people can have where they can transcend biblical truth and experience God's glory, right? Despite the fact we have no word of God that that really says anything to the sort, that that should be the focus of the Christian life at all, okay? And so what is he attacking? Reason, logic, God's word, theology, sound doctrine, sound instruction, and sound teaching. And in later parts of this of this message that he gives, he, he openly, openly, hostily attacks these things. So how does he know what he knows? Well, it's based upon his experience. So now here's a question for you. John Crowder supposedly believes in a different God and a different Jesus than the Mormons, right? Okay. And uh, he's saying that he's having an experience from God. And the Mormons who have a completely different God and a completely different Jesus are claiming they're having an experience from God. Um, What can we determine about the truth? Both these groups are having experiences, right? Yep. Okay. You know that there are different segments of Muslim, of Islam, you know, that uh, the, the whirling dervish crowd, okay, 
there I've I've seen some strange videos in my lifetime. One is you know these 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 mystic Muslims who get into an altered state of con, uh, of consciousness and they're able to stick swords through their skin and and pokers through different parts of their body and stuff like that, right? They're having an experience, aren't they? Does that mean that that their the religion is true? No. No, you don't think so? I don't think so. You don't think so? No. Okay. So if we basically go with a subjective epistemology, that is epistemology has to do with how you know what you know, and if we're determining truth based upon subjective feeling and experience, then we're not really capable of understanding, calling anything really true. I mean, because your truth might be what you experienced, and my truth might be what I experienced, and those experiences, you know, so let's say they transcend understanding, right? You know, then how can I? How can you say that somebody's experience wasn't really true, right? So, folks, if you're going to determine truth based upon subjectivity. You are going to get your clock cleaned and you are on dangerous ground where you can truly be deceived because you don't – the scripture doesn't encourage us to determine truth based upon our feelings, nothing more than feelings, right? How does the scripture tell us to know the truth? Well, let's start with Thomas, doubting Thomas. And we'll call Thomas a good Missouri guy. Why? Because Missouri is the show me state, right? So if you have your Bibles, open up to the Gospel of John. Sorry, I have to switch modes here. All right. And let's see here. All right. Um, Got to make sure I'm in the right chapter here. Uh, 23. Whoa, how did that happen? That's weird. 23. 20. Here we go. All right. Now, listen to this. John, John, John chapter 20, verse 24. Now, just to kind of bring you up to speed regarding the context of this passage. It's after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus has been crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and was dead. They put him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea on the eve of the Passover. And on Sunday morning, early morning, uh, women from among the disciples went to go anoint Jesus's body. And he wasn't there. Okay. Jesus was not there. And they saw angels who said that he had been raised. Okay. And there's different accounts where, you know, Jesus appears to the disciples and then, you know, you have the road to uh, Emmaus and other times where Jesus appears. Okay. Now, what happened is, is that the disciples were in the upper room and Jesus appeared to them and spoke with them and showed him himself. Okay. But Thomas didn't happen to be there the first time that Jesus shows up. And so Jesus appears a week later. Okay. And Thomas basically said that he was not going to believe unless he could see. Right. So John chapter 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, well, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails and place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He wants proof. Okay. 
He wants he wants proof. He wants evidence. Okay. Now, at this point, if you were a good Mormon, you would say to Thomas, Thomas, just pray to Jesus, pray to God to show you in your heart that Jesus is really raised from the dead. And you'll get a burning in your bosom that'll tell you that's the truth, right? Okay. Well, here's what it says, verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Did Jesus rebuke Thomas? No, he didn't. Quite the contrary. Jesus is actually being rather loving and kind to Thomas and basically saying, listen, stop. Touch me. See, it's me. Here. Take my hand. He literally has him touch him. Okay? And did Thomas say, oh, that's okay, Lord. I had a burning in my bosom. It's all right. (laughs) No. Jesus, uh, it says, Thomas answered him, you are my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. And blessed are those who have not seen and yet they have believed. Okay, now that would be, we're blessed because I haven't seen Jesus. Have you seen him lately? Have not. You know, although I thought I saw him at the mall. No, maybe that was somebody dressed up. I can't say. (laughs) Joke. Okay, so here's the deal. I haven't seen Jesus. You haven't seen Jesus. Yet I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily. Why? What do I base this on? Do I base it upon some subjective feeling? I'll be honest with you. Absolutely not. No way, Jose. Not in a million, million, million years. Okay? Yet I am absolutely confident that Jesus rose from the dead. Absolutely confident. Certain of it, in fact. What do I base that on? If I don't base it on my experience or my feelings. Well, I'll tell you what I base it on. I base it on the evidence. Okay? I base it on the evidence. Because when you take a look at the scriptures, specifically we'll look at the New Testament. I want you to stop for a second and I want you to realize something. The Bible that you might own, the Bible you might possess, it might be a really nice leather-bound Bible, you know, with the gold trim and the little tabs that show you, know, show you where the different chapters are, the different, the different books of the Bible are, Right? And, you know, and every time you touch your Bible or you smell that leather, you think, ah, this is the word of God, right? Okay. And it's got that really, really thin onion skin paper, right? Okay, folks, stop that. Stop for a second. That's not how the Bible came down to us. That's how we've packaged it. That's how we've marketed it. But work with me for a second. The New Testament is a little library. It's a little library of several different types of works. There are four biographies in the New Testament that are written by four completely different authors, right? Okay. Two of those authors, Matthew and John, claim that they are eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus Christ. Okay. Two of those. The Gospel of Mark more than likely were the preaching notes of the Apostle Peter, which basically means that that there's eyewitness it's you know it it also contains eyewitness testimony and then the gospel of luke is a unique gospel because luke dr luke claims that he compiled his gospel after interviewing the eyewitnesses okay so we've got four biographies we've got a historical account of the early church the book of acts uh we also have uh, a bunch of letters bunch of letters and then we've got this really bizarre thing at the end of it you know the 
the uh, revelation, the apocalypse, you know, uh, that was revealed to John. Okay. So here's the deal. How many authors have we got? Well, let's see. We got Matthew. We got Mark. We got Luke. We got John. We've got Peter. We've got Paul. We've got James and Jude. Right. All right. So just just cursory you know, look at this. We've got at least eight different authors. Okay. And maybe if I, if somebody else I've missed, you know, well, they're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but I think it's Paul based on the on the grammar. Anyway, so um, so at least eight authors. Okay. Now, in in our day and age, when we quote different, when, if I'm an author and I quote an author, okay, that's not circular logic, right? Okay. Now, if I quote myself to prove myself right, that's uh, circular logic. So when we quote one New Testament author to prove um, that to corroborate with what another New Testament author is saying, that actually counts as, as some you know as as eyewitness testimony as corroboration, right? Okay, so here's the deal. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographers, their stories all jive really well together. Okay? Really, really well. And each of them provides us a different account of Jesus' life written from their perspective and from their experience. Not an experience that was a spiritual esoteric kind of experience, but the flesh and blood experience that they had with Jesus Christ, with the exception of Luke, who who wrote his gospel by interviewing the eyewitnesses, right? Okay? So uh, what do we got here? We got we got people who are running around the Judean countryside during the first century claiming to have spent years with this itinerant preacher by the name of Jesus. Okay? And at this point, whether or not Jesus is who he claimed to be and what it is that he claimed to be, it's not based upon what I feel about him. Okay? It's about what the eyewitnesses said that they heard him say can can there can those claims that they made about what he cl- said be corroborated by other people? Remember, we got four biographies, and then is there any proof to back up the claims that they have? And so, at this point, if you, the way we really know the Bible is true is by conducting a historical survey, basically doing historical science on it. How do you know that? Um, how do you know that uh, Abraham Lincoln was a historical person? The evidence. The evidence? The evidence, yeah. Now, how do you know that he's the one who actually delivered the Gettysburg Address and it wasn't Madeline Murray O'Hare? The witnesses. The witnesses that were there, right? Yeah. Okay, so at this point, we look we look historically at the documentation. And what do historians do? They spend time looking at books, at biographies, at... At journals, they they you know they basically look at the 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 record as it comes down to them, you know, to determine what it is that that person, who he was, where he came from, what he accomplished, what he said, what he did, and how he died, and all that kind of other stuff, right? Yes. So you're pretty sure that John Wilkes Booth is the one who murdered Abraham Lincoln, and that it wasn't General Lee. Uh, yeah, I would, I would go with that. You would go with that. Yes. Okay, you're, you're pretty sure on this. Oh, yes. And and what are you basing this decision on, John? Is this, is this something you're feeling in your heart? Historical evidence and eyewitness testimony. Historical evidence and why eyewitness testimony. Man, you sound so – how do you determine truth that way? Come on. That doesn't, that's no fun. What, have you prayed about this? No. No. <laughs> no, you haven't, huh? I, I think all the praying in the world wouldn't change that evidence. Right. Okay. You, you sure it wasn't General Grant who killed Lincoln? I mean, he did become president pretty shortly after there, right? 
One president, maybe twoing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I mean, how do you know it wasn't a grand conspiracy by General Grant to knock off Abraham Lincoln so that he could ascend to the presidency within a couple of years? The, the evidence isn't there. There's no evidence for that, is there? No. But, you know, if I prayed about that and God told me that that was the truth, then that could be true, couldn't it? No, that would be a dream or something you ate or. <laughs> <laughs> All right. OK, so now we're getting somewhere about this. OK, so how did the um, apostles argue for the, you know, for Christianity? Is there are there any examples from the teachings of the apostles of the apostles saying, listen, OK, forget that whole empty tomb thing. You don't need to go there. Just pray and God will tell you that it's true. No, I don't think so. You don't think so? No. Okay. All right. Well, um, here's the funny thing about Christianity. Okay. I'll, I'll say this before we go into the, into the next break. Christianity has the only religious truth claim that can actually be overthrown. Okay. Now, I, I, let me let me explain the importance of this. This is actually really important. You know, can you, you know, can, the, can you actually disprove the Mormon burning in the bosom? No. No, you can't. There's no way to disprove it. Okay? Somebody claims I know something's true because I feel it in my heart, and you have to experience it yourself, and once you experience it, you'll know it's true. Can you disprove that? No. no. Okay? No, not at all. Um, so um, if you can't disprove that, um, this, uh, and this is pretty much the same with all the other religions in the world, but Christianity has a disprovable truth claim. Did you know that? Yeah. All right. Let's see here. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of <clears throat> going to do a little bit of uh, work here. All right. All right. Here we go. Where's uh, got to find my passage? Okay. Here we go. Words. If Christ raised. Doing a little search here. I always want to say it's in 1 Corinthians 15. It probably is, but it's a long chapter, and I'm just too lazy to read the whole thing. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Okay. We're going to look this up in the NIV then. Here. There we go. Not raised. No. I'm not finding it. Ugh. We're going to go into our second break. i got to find it over the break. I can't believe I'm failing miserably here. Oh, man. If Christ has not been raised, is, you know, it's, it's, it's in there. But, of course, I, I want to say that it's in 1 Corinthians 15, but I don't have the, uh, the, the proper street address at, in front of me. So stay with me, folks. Uh, I, I know I'm getting old. I just know it's happening. But stay with me. Uh, we'll be right back. If you would like to email me regarding uh, how you know that Jesus rose from the dead... Uh, and you know it in your heart, email me. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We will be right back. And I gotta hunt through my Bible now. We'll see you in a minute. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. 
I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, we're back. And it is in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm, I'm already there. Yeah, I, I should just go with my gut level, because I knew within my heart that... Never mind. <laughs> Something tells me that's very wrong. Yeah, I know. It was a feeling yeah. that I had. Right, it was a feeling that I had. And then I had an orange, and it went away. <laughs> it was called hunger pains. You know what? It could be diabetes. It could be hypoglycemia. Uh, it could be a piece of undigested fish. Okay. All right, we're talking about the fact that Christianity is the only religion that has a disprovable truth claim. Okay, listen to this from First Paul, uh, not First Paul, Paul writing in First Corinthians chapter 15. I'm getting old, and it really stinks. Here's what he says, First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, apparently there were some in the Corinthian church who were doubting the resurrection. Who was, the, who was the group that was famous for doubting the resurrection at the time of Jesus? The Sadducees. But uh, there were no Sadducees here in uh, Corinth. But there were some people in Corinth who were saying, ah, there's no resurrection of the dead. Why? Because to the Greek here, that's just tomfoolery, right? So if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost, and if only this, if only this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So Christianity actually has a disprovable truth claim. You, and here's what it comes down to. You want to know this? 
provide me with undeniable proof that you've got the bones of Jesus Christ, and I'll walk away from Christianity because it's a lie. But, you know, that's the thing about liberals and mystics alike. You know, there's a great quote. I forget who gave it, but uh, enthusiasts, those would be your, like, Pentecostal types. Enthusiasts and liberals hunt in packs. Okay. Here's uh, here's one of the number one liberals in the world who sat on the Jesus seminar, which, you know, used their beads to cast votes against, you know, what, what passages of Scripture in the, in the New Testament were actually historically true and which, you know, which were not. Here's John Dominic Crossan talking about what his view is regarding that movie that came out from the Discovery Channel a couple of years ago on the lost tomb of Jesus where they, you know, Shimka Yakubovich claimed that he had uh, discovered the ossuary with the, which at one time had contained the bones of Jesus. Uh, listen to John Dominic Crossan, who's supposed to be a Christian, and l- listen to what he says. This is all kinds of fun. If the bones of Jesus were to be found in an ossuary in Jerusalem tomorrow, and without doubt, let's say they are definitely agreed to be the bones of Jesus, would that destroy Christian faith? It certainly would not destroy my Christian faith. I leave what happens to bodies up to God. All right, so if uh, they discovered the bones of Jesus Christ, that wouldn't destroy his Christian faith. Well, his Christian faith is way different than Paul's, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Worlds apart. Why? Because John Dominic Crossan doesn't believe the Bible's the word of God to begin with. Okay? He's been fighting his entire career to overthrow the word of God. And so it doesn't make it, you know, it doesn't surprise anybody that he would uh, side with Shimka Yakubovich and basically say if they found the bones of Jesus, it wouldn't destroy his Christian faith. Yet Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Christianity rises or falls on Jesus actually being who he claimed to be. And Jesus claimed to be none other than the one true God, in fact, more specifically, the God of the Jews in human flesh. And what did he say that would be his uh, his proof for that? He said, tear down this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And he was talking about the temple of his body. So here's the deal. How do we know Christianity is true? Well, it comes down to evidence. Number one. Is there evidence to support the claims that the biographies in the New Testament were written by eyewitnesses early to mid-first century? Okay? If there's textual evidence to support that, then you have to look at the claims being made in the documents themselves. The documents claim that Jesus went around the Judean countryside 2,000 years ago actually claiming to be God. Okay, he forgave sins. He used divine, the divine name I am for himself. He called, you know, he said the father uh, that he was equal to the father, making himself equal with God. Uh, the Jews wanted to stone him on several occasions because of his overt claims to being the one true God. And Jesus basically the proof that he gave that he was who he claimed to be is that he raised himself from the dead three days after he was crucified, and according to the eyewitnesses, he appeared to more than 500 of his followers at one time. His followers claimed that they saw him dead, and that three days later, in the weeks that followed the leading up to Pentecost, they spoke with Jesus, they touched Jesus, they ate fish with Jesus, they had all kinds of little they, of, of everyday normal experiences that you would have with a normal living person. Okay, 
So that being the case, can you trust the eyewitness testimony? Well, that's where it comes down to. Can you trust? Is there evidence to support the eyewitness testimony? The answer to that is absolutely there is. Number one, not one of the apostles goes to their death or, or, or recants their story. Okay, now this kind of sounds silly because it, we know it's possible for somebody to believe a lie, right? Okay, but I would postulate that it's practically impossible to expect somebody to die for something that they know is a lie. Okay, and what was the explanation that the Jews and the Romans concocted in order to explain Jesus's resurrection? Well, they said that the disciples came and stole the body. Let's go with that for a minute. Okay, so the disciples came. Let, let's just go with that theory. And they, they, you know, while the Romans weren't looking, because they had posted. By the way, there was a hundred Roman soldiers outside of Jesus's tomb after he was after he was buried in uh, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, there was a hundred Roman soldiers sitting outside of his tomb, and apparently they all fell asleep. And while they weren't looking, the disciples came in and stole the body. Okay? That kind of lacks credulity. I know what it is. Here's what happens. The disciples came in the middle of the night and said, hey, listen, we want the body, and here's some money. Because they were really rich, right? No. 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 Okay. So they stole the, well, somehow they stole the body or bribed the, the guards, right? I don't think so. Well, but I know you don't think so, but let's just go with the story. Oh, okay. 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 So that being the case, uh, did the disciples know that Jesus really didn't rise from the dead? If they stole yeah. the body, then they know that he didn't. Oh, yeah. I okay. Guess. Yet they were running around claiming that he did rise from the dead. Yes. Okay. Now, how many of the disciples who claimed that Jesus rose from the dead spent their lives raking in all kinds of cash and buying up uh, properties on the Mediterranean and basically becoming wealthy jet setters. I don't see that in the scriptures. Not one of them. In fact, all but one of them die a martyr's death. Peter was crucified upside down. It took him two days to die. Okay, James had his head lopped off. You see, there's stories about some of the other disciples. They were zipped up in, uh, in animal skins and fed to the lions. You know, that's all kinds of fun. And then you got, you know, you got other people, you know, Paul was beheaded and you have other Christians who were used as torches, you know, things like that. Okay. So, uh, was there any monetary gain, earthly gain for them to basically claim that they were witnesses to Jesus's resurrection? Just the opposite. Quite the opposite. And none of them recanted their story, right? Yes. Okay. Now throw into this mix, the apostle Paul. Okay, who, by the way, his his name prior to becoming a Christian was not Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. And what was his job when he would go into the office every Monday? What was his job? To uh, uh, persecute Christians. Right. He, he, he was a he was a Christian persecutor. In fact, he made it his personal business to go and round up Christians and throw them in jail. And uh, he was there giving approval when Stephen was martyred. Right. So he, would you think that Saul of Tarsus was a sympathetic was sympathetic to Christianity or was he uh, hostile to Christianity? You know, Chris, the answer is B. <laughs> just work and th work work with me here. I know it sounds kind of stupid, but the the got to work through all the different the, the, the different scenarios here. So Saul of Tarsus, he was on his way to Damascus to round up Christians to throw them in prison and basically persecute them for believing in Jesus, right? And what happened to him? Oh. Jesus Jesus knocks him off his high horse and basically says, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" Right? 
Okay, what happens as a result? So the Saul becomes a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Yeah, he does. Okay, now you'll notice that Saul didn't make a personal decision for Jesus. Jesus made a personal decision for him. And so Saul, he has an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. And he becomes a Christian. And probably the number one defender and proclaimer of the Christian faith and the good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures to the Gentiles and probably the greatest church planter of all times. And what did it cost him? His very life. And not just in one particular day, it cost him his life all along the way because he was stoned, he was persecuted, he was beaten, he was arrested, he spent so much time in prison. You know, you get what I'm saying? There wasn't there wasn't much for him to uh, gain from this, was there? No. But the Apostle Paul, as he became known, is an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he keeps pointing us back to the same argument that the Apostles gave. How do they how do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? We are eyewitnesses to this event. So who are you going to believe? The eyewitnesses or something else? And I tell you, folks, if you want to spend some time really going deep on this evidence, if you if you if this is just a basic starter for you, go get Lee Strobel's book The Case for Christ and The Case for the Real Jesus. Two really well-written, easy-to-read books that lay out good evidence. Now, if you want something a little bit more heady and a little bit more meaty, go and get Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. One and two, to be to be quite honest. Both of them are, are excellent. And you will see for yourself that the evidence is absolutely 100% rock solid. Christ doesn't ask you to leap into the darkness he doesn't ask you to believe against the evidence. In fact, Jesus invites you to put your hands into his side and touch the nail marks, literally, in a very real way, through the evidence that is there to support the claims of the New Testament biographers and authors. And when you look at the evidence, you will have to come to a conclusion. You will have to make a decision. The evidence irrefutably proves that Jesus was not only a person of history, but that he was who he claimed to be, that being God in human flesh. So what are you going to do with Jesus? Because, you know, the evidence supports that he is who he claimed to be. Now, these 12 disciples, did they, um, they little applications to follow Jesus? Did they? Funny enough, no. Uh, Jesus pops up in their town and says, hey, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They go, okay. So Jesus picked them. Yeah. They didn't pick Jesus. Mm-mm. No. And the funny thing was, is that Jesus had to spend three years with them kind of reworking in them what their concept of the Messiah was, if you would. Okay, they, they had ideas about the Messiah and what he would do that didn't really jive with what the Messiah was really going to do. They were looking at the prophecies regarding the second advent of the Messiah and thinking that that was going to happen the first advent. Now, they didn't realize that Jesus was coming twice, first to save us and then to judge the world. Okay. So these guys didn't pick Jesus. They picked uh, Jesus picked him or them. And uh, all but one of them, and that's the Apostle John. Apostle John apparently died of old age in exile, though. It's not like he didn't suffer. He did. Uh, and uh, none of these guys recanted their story. None of them. Now, if they had stolen the body, it doesn't make any sense because they would pretty much be choosing a life of hardship and persecution and really nasty deaths 
in order to promulgate what something that they knew was a lie. Does that make any sense to you? No. No, it doesn't make any sense to me at all either. So, and not just one of them, but 11 of them. Well, because Judas went and hung himself, right? But then you got the Apostle Paul who was martyred under Nero. He was lucky because he was a Roman citizen. He had the luxury of being beheaded rather than crucified. So, you know, so we thank God for small miracles, right? But Christianity can be overthrown. Christianity can be overthrown. How? Because it's not based upon a subjective feeling. You don't look inside of your heart. You don't ask God to give you a burning in your bosom. You look at the evidence of the eyewitness testimony that's recorded for us in the scriptures, and you say, is this true or is it not true? And I'll tell you again and again and again, you produce the bones of Jesus Christ, I will be the first to leave Christianity because it's a crock. And you should leave it too. Don't hang around with John Dominic Crossan miserable that's ridiculously miserable they've got a god they've got a, a god who who wants you to live a moral life but doesn't save you that isn't even historical worst case scenario i'm telling you so there you have it okay how do you know what you know look to the scriptures and look at the evidence and over again throughout history there have been people who have set out to disprove christianity and show that it was utter silliness and stupidity and that and what has happened to those people over and again they become christians why? Because the evidence is there and it's outside of themselves. It's verifiable. It's provable. It's reproducible. Okay. I'm telling you, this falls into the science of historiography and you can trust Jesus. And here's the great news. Because he rose from the dead, you can also know with certainty that Christ died for your sins. That's the best part about it. Now, as one of the things we're going to be launching as soon as I'm done laying this out is I've uh, Pirate Christian Radio is going to be launching a journal. Okay, it's going to be a PDF journal, and if you subscribe to Fighting for the Faith, um, you'll you'll actually get the journal as part of your uh, podcast download. And or, and if you don't subscribe to Fighting for the Faith, you'll need to go to Pirate Christian Radio, and yeah, when we put the journal button up there, you'll have to hit on hit that in order to. Uh, in order to download it. But it's a PDF, and uh, if you get the Fighting for the Faith podcast, you'll get it automatically. And I'm in the process of writing an article about uh, about Jesus' view of Scripture. Now, this is very interesting. How do I know there's a God? Well, I know there's a God because God became a man one day in Jesus Christ and proved who he was by raising himself from the dead. Forget all the philosophical arguments. They're, they don't lead you to Christ. They just make you theists, Okay. Now, funny enough, this argument also works regarding the Scripture. Today, in our day and time, there is a whole group of people who call themselves progressive Christians or Christ followers or, you know, or whatever the latest uh, name du jour is that they've come up with, right? And they all claim that they're, 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 these are publishers, these are authors, these are pastors, these are, who's, these are men who think deep thoughts. And um, their view of uh, God's Word and if you were to listen to them and follow their arguments, men like Brian McLaren, the emergent guys, if you were to believe their arguments regarding the word of God, you would come away basically believing less about the Bible than it was the word of God. Your opinion would not be that it's the word of God. It would be something less than that. These are guys who are openly attacking Sola Scriptura. And uh, with the fact that we've now established, based on the evidence, that you can know the Christianity is true based upon the evidence, the historical evidence. We know with certainty that God became a man in Jesus Christ. He proved who he was by raising himself from the dead. And therefore, um, I like, would like to make the claim that Jesus Christ also 
gives us a lot of information about how we should view the scriptures. Okay. And I'm going to make this claim. I'm going to make the claim that there has never been ever a greater expert on the scriptures who has ever lived than Jesus Christ. Okay. What do I base that claim on? Well, the Bible claims to be the word of God and Jesus claims to be God in human flesh. God being God, uh, God wins, right? It's kind of how that goes. Um, so, um, what I would like to do is, um, kind of point some things out. And this is, this is part of an article that I'm writing for the new pirate Christian radio journal, which is called the lighthouse, by the way. Okay. And, um, so here's, here's, here's where I'm going to start this off. Modern and postmodern liberalism and their higher critic and deconstructionist co-belligerence. I like that sentence. <laughs> Because <laughs> it, you know, never mind. He's, they have a preoccupation with removing God's contribution to the formation of scriptures, and these people seem obsessed with trying to make the Bible into a mere human product. Stories of pristine gardens, Adam and Eve, the forbidden fruit, a worldwide flood, the ark, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and a prophet being swallowed by a big fish are too silly and childish to believe to be believed at face value as actual historical events for people of their ilk. But uh, what did Jesus teach regarding these Old Testament stories? Did Jesus consider them to be mere man-made mythological narratives, or did he actually believe them to be much, much more? Well, keep in mind, folks, we've already made the claim that Jesus is God in human flesh, and he proved his claim by raising himself from the dead. That means that in Jesus Christ, there is no greater authority on the scriptures who has ever lived than Jesus Christ. And I'm going to make the claim that you should not have an opinion of the scriptures that is less than Jesus's. Because if you call yourself a Christian, and you have an opinion of scripture that is less than Jesus's, and uh, there's some trouble, and we'll explain this in a minute. Okay, so what was Jesus's view of the Old Testament? We're going to start with there. Okay, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, um, the eyewitness author records this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. Okay, so the eyewitness to this event is Matthew, and he actually witnessed this and recorded this in his gospel. Matthew 19, starting at verse 3, it says, The Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for one uh, to divorce one's wife for any cause? They were testing Jesus, right? So Jesus answered, um, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay. Now, the topic that the Pharisees were uh, testing Jesus on was marriage and divorce. Uh, the question was rather stupid and poorly thought out, but Jesus' answer actually tells us a lot about his view of the book of Genesis. First, Jesus points the Pharisees to Genesis as if it alone provides the authoritative answer to their trick question. Then Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, as if it literally meant what it said. Quote, God created him, male and female, he created them. Then Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, as if it literally meant what it said. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice, there was no equivocation on Jesus' part and no hint that he secretly believed that the opening story of Genesis was a man-made poetic myth 
or that it was less than historically true. In fact, Jesus's final statement on the matter makes it perfectly clear that Jesus literally believes that God is the one who brings a man and woman together and makes them one flesh. And all of this is predicated on Jesus's belief that Adam and Eve were literally and historically the first two humans created by God. So let me ask you some challenging questions here. So if you call yourself a Christian or a Christ follower, yet you don't believe that the story of Adam and Eve is historically true or accurate, what authority are you basing this belief on? By what authority have you made that decision? Is it right for you to call yourself a Christian or a Christ follower when your view of the scriptures are at odds with Jesus's views? I think that's a fair question, isn't it? I would say so. All right. So Adam and Eve are not the only people that Jesus believed were historical and whose stories were accurately documented in the Old Testament and specifically in the book of Genesis. Okay. In Matthew 23, verses 34 through 35, Jesus actually affirms the historicity of Abel. Who was Abel? Abel was Adam and Eve's second son. First son, Cain. Second son, Abel. So Jesus affirms the historicity of Abel and his murder at the hand of his brother, Cain. Here's the passage. Matthew 23, verses 34 and 35. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees, saying that they're going to be held accountable for the blood of innocent Abel, uh, of all the righteous from innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, right? So if the story of Cain and Abel were mere man-made myth, okay, it didn't really happen. It's just some kind of a mythology to get, you know, to, it's a cautionary tale, right? It's a moral story, you know, like Aesop's fables. So if the story of Cain and Abel were man-made myth, then Jesus' claim that he would hold the Pharisees accountable for the blood of the righteous from Cain to Zechariah, um, that would simply be meaningless, wouldn't it? After all, how do you hold someone accountable for mythological blood that was never actually shed because the person who supposedly bled it never historically existed? Can you do that? No. No. So Jesus becomes pretty much an idiot. Okay. So here's a challenge point I have for y'all. Having a lesser view of scripture or denying that Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel existed and that their stories are accurately recorded in Genesis turns Jesus into a moronic buffoon. Does it not? After all, according to the eyewitnesses, Jesus actually believed the Genesis accounts of these people to be historically accurate and true. If they are not true, then Jesus is not who he claimed to be. That's being God in human flesh. Instead, Jesus really is nothing more than a tragically stupid and deceived religious nut job. The same can also be said about Jesus's view of Noah, the worldwide flood, the ark, Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jonah, and the big fish. Let me keep reading. What did Jesus believe about Noah and the flood? That it actually happened. Yeah, you know, that's, act, that's tr most certainly true. Let me read Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 36. Jesus says, but concerning that day, talking about the end of time, okay, Jesus talking about the end of days, 
He says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Jesus is talking as if this really happened, isn't he? He says they were eating and marrying and drinking and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Interesting, right? This passage makes it unmistakably clear that Jesus believed that Noah was an actual historical person who built an ark and that the world was destroyed by the flood, just as it is recorded for us in the book of Genesis. Jesus even likens his imminent second coming to the worldwide flood that deluged the world in the, in the time of Noah. The implications of this logic are impossible to miss, unless you're a liberal. Um, if the flood story is just a myth instead of an actual historical event, as Jesus clearly believed it to be, then Jesus is a liar instead of God in human flesh, and he isn't really going to come back to judge the living and the dead. That whole second coming of Jesus stuff, just hang it up now. If, if Noah and the flood didn't occur then Jesus isn't coming back because Jesus actually hooks in his second coming to Noah and the flood says it's going to be just like it in those days. Right. What did Jesus believe about Sodom and Gomorrah? Now, this is a really touchy subject. Why? Because, you know, I've actually heard liberal scholars say that the sin that, that, that occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah was the sin of inhospitality. Okay. The, the sin that we call sodomy um, folks, the sodomy is not in hospitality. That's homosexual sex. Okay. It's a sin. Okay. And the fact that they wanted to rape the two angels that God sent to, you know, to, you know, to Sodom, um, the men of the town wanted to rape them. That, that says something about their wickedness, doesn't it? In hospitality, my foot. Anyway, so the liberals, they don't like dealing with this particular passage, and they try to gloss over it and redefine it and, and find a way to get away from the homosexual issue because the liberals are so hell-bent on finding a way to make it so that homosexuals can come into Christianity without repenting of their sins and that somehow God is going to shine on their monogamous relationships. He doesn't. It's a sin. But regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, we read, Jesus' opinion, opinion, he's talking to Capernaum, you know, kind of calling woes down on them. This is Matthew 11, starting at verse 23. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Do you think Jesus actually believed that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for their wickedness? Definitely. Uh-huh. Why? He says that they would be there to that day if they had repented, right? So in this passage, Jesus confirms the historicity of the Genesis story regarding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and tells the people of Capernaum that the day of judgment will be more tolerable for Sodom than it will be for them. Now, these are empty words that Jesus spoke of Sodom and Gomorrah never existed and were not destroyed by God because of their wickedness, right? Jesus is just speaking gobbledygook. Jesus might as well be going, hey, listen, right? Gibberish. Gibberish. Or, you know, hanging out with John Crowder. Okay. What did Jesus believe about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? 
There's lots of passages I can go to here. Over and again, Jesus confirms the historicity of the, of Abraham as a person and claims to all the Jews and Pharisees that they are direct descendants of Abraham. But listen to this one. Um, but Jesus, this is Matthew 22, 29 and 30, through 33. It says this, but Jesus answered them. And this is when the uh, they, the Sadducees came and tried to trick him regarding marriage and said, if, you know, if, if, if a woman marries a, a man and he dies and then she marries his brother and then he dies and marries another brother, you know, that story. And so and all the way down to where, you know, she's married seven brothers and they've all crumped. Their question is, who's, whose wife will she be in the, uh, you know, in the new you know, at the, at the restoration of all things, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> uh, Jesus's rebuke of the Sadducees is they didn't understand the scriptures or the power of God for the re- for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus not only believed in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he claimed that the, what was written about them was actually written by God. That's what the verse 31 says. And not only that, that they're still alive. He's the God of the living, not the dead, right? Hmm. So in this passage, Jesus not only affirms the historicity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he even claims that they are still living. And to deny the historicity of any of these men is to make Jesus out to be a liar. What about Jonah and the big fish? Certainly Jesus was smart enough and rational enough to know that the absurd story of Jonah and the great fish was nothing more than a mythological fish story and a cautionary tale. Right? Not on your life. No way. According to the eyewitnesses to Jesus's life, Jesus actually believed the story of Jonah and the fish was literal and it was an actual historical event. Did you know that? Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. But he, Jesus, answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign But no sign will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and they will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something, someone greater than Jonah is here. By the way, this is cross-reference in Luke chapter 11, verse, uh, verse 32 saying that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and and will judge this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. Not only did, did Jesus believe that Jonah was literally three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, that's what he said, he ties his own resurrection from the dead to this event. And in the Luke passage, Jesus says that the men of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah will rise up to condemn the people, uh, uh, the people of Jesus's generation because they didn't repent, despite the fact that someone greater than Jonah was calling them to repentance. Again, these would be rather silly and empty words if the Jonah story was mere man-made mythological narrative, wouldn't it? Okay. Not only that, why would Jesus say hook his own resurrection into that story. Why? Because that story literally happened and it points to him. Right? So what can we conclude then about Jesus's view of the Old Testament scriptures? This is just a sample of it, by the way. We could pull out other passages. 
Well, plain and simple, Jesus believed that the Old Testament is the inspired, inerrant, historically accurate, literal word of God. I think I've made that case pretty clear. Undeniably, Jesus had an extremely high view of the Old Testament scriptures. But what about the New Testament scriptures? Isn't that a different story, right? Well, funny enough, Jesus has something to say about them as well. In fact, Jesus puts his stamp of approval on the New Testament documents before they're even written. Don't believe me? Pull out your Bible. You're going to need it. The Apostle John, in his eyewitness biography, records Jesus as promising his disciples that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind, literally a miraculous total recall, if you would, all the things that Jesus said and taught them. Let me read that again. The Apostle John, in his eyewitness biography, records Jesus promising his disciples that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind all the things that Jesus said and taught them. We find this in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 25 and 26. It says this, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will bring to the apostles' remembrance all the things that he had said to them. So Jesus, in this verse, literally is promising the disciples that they would receive miraculous memory recall in their teaching ministries. This miraculous memory recall, which was given to them as a gift of the Holy Spirit, applied not only to the words that they spoke about Jesus, but also the words that they wrote about Jesus. Okay? In fact, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, which is recorded for us by the eyewitness John... Jesus prays not only for his disciples, but he also prays for all those who will believe in him through the words that the apostles speak. Let me read this. John chapter 17, starting at verse 17. Jesus says to them, Lord, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, so so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate my life that they may also be sanctified in the truth. How are you sanctified in the truth? What's his, God's word is truth, right? Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Did you hear that? Jesus prays for us who will believe in Jesus through their words, the words of the apostles. Okay? That they may all they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus, in John 14, says that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind all the things that Jesus taught. And then Jesus prays for all the people who will believe in him through their words. Well, here's the question. Today, where do we find the words of the apostles? The ones who sat at the feet of Jesus for three years. New Testament, right. In fact, let me put it this way. In other words, Jesus put his miraculous stamp of divine approval on the words of the apostles. Jesus believes that the New Testament, this is the only place where we are able to find the words of the apostles today, is the inspired and miraculously inerrant and authoritative word of God every bit as much as the Old Testament is. This is why the primary criterion for a document, whether that was a biography or a letter, to be included in the New Testament was whether or not it was, can be proven that it was, had apostolic authorship. Did you know that? 
It, so many people think that, oh, the, the New Testament canon, you know, that wasn't decided until the 4th century. Hogwash. That is just absolutely not true. Let me give you a, a verse, by the way. Acts chapter 2.42. Okay. Listen to this about the early Christians. Acts chapter 2.42 says, They, the Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayer. What was the sign of somebody who was who was a Christian? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? Okay? That right off the bat, right after the day of Pentecost, first sermon out of the chute, after Christ ascends to heaven and they receive the power of the Holy Spirit and preach, and put, Peter preaches at Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. And what happens to those Christians? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. So where today do we find the apostles' teaching? We find it in the New Testament. And again, the evidence is there to support it. And the question as to whether or not a document should have been included in the New Testament was whether or not it can be shown that it had apostolic authorship. Okay? In fact, I know this is true. Why? Because the early Christian church fathers, okay, if you're familiar with them at all, they quote the New Testament documents extensively and authoritatively. So much so, in fact, that we can produce, if we didn't have a single copy of the New Testament that existed from the early, from the ancient times, we could actually reproduce the entire New Testament documents with the exception of, of 11 verses, with the exception of 11 verses from the writings of all of the early church fathers from the time of about 212 AD. Okay, that is that is long before the Council of Nicaea, and it's only a little over a century from the completion of the New Testament. The church, right out of the chute, they're quoting the New Testament documents as authoritative, as apostolic. Read the church fathers. You can't miss the scripture in it. The, the stuff is teeming with God's word in the New Testament authors. And they quote it as authoritative against all of the heresies, the Gnostics, and all the garbage that was coming up that was challenging Christianity. Get to know, again, folks, Get out of this century. Start reading the really old books. Christianity didn't start the day that you became a Christian. It's been around for a long time. And if we knew our history, we'd be able to fight these these idiots off a lot easier. Anyway. So, kind of summing things up here. Jesus Christ is the greatest expert who ever lived regarding the subject of the word of God in the scriptures. Okay. Jesus is none other than the one true God in human flesh. He proved this by raising himself from the dead only three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Jesus had the highest view of scripture that anyone could have because of his credentials as God. Okay. In fact, because of his credentials as God, he has the unique position of being able to speak on this subject with an authority that none can ever possess. I defy you to show me better credentials than Jesus's. Okay? So if you call yourself a Christian or a Christ follower, it is eternally dangerous and perilous for you to hold a lesser view of the scriptures than that that Jesus holds. Furthermore, holding a lesser view of scripture than Jesus Christ is out of character for anyone who claims to be a Christian or a Christ follower. That's the right term, right, huh? Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, 
verse 23 and 24. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep or guard my word. And the father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep or guard my words. You want to have a lesser view of scripture? Jesus is basically saying, that, oh, really? You don't want to keep and guard my words? Then you don't really love me. John 8, verses 43 through 47, the eyewitness records Jesus saying to the Pharisees, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. In other words, according to Jesus, it is not the behavior of one who loves Jesus to attack and undermine the scriptures, but it is the behavior of one who does not love Jesus and those who are not of God, but are instead of the devil. So what will your opinion be? Who will you believe and follow? Will you follow the modern and postmodern liberals and their higher critics and their deconstructionist friends who are telling you that you cannot believe the word of God, that it's not historically accurate, that it's not inerrant, and that sola scriptura is just completely untenable? Or will you follow and believe Jesus and have no opinion of scripture that is lesser than his? Jesus doesn't ask you to follow him blindly. Look at the evidence. So that being the case, I will let Jesus have the last word on this subject, and it comes from Matthew twenty-four thirty-five. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All right. The end of the program. Folks, if you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard in today's program, you can do so at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Until tomorrow, God bless you.